0: Have you ever looked at your nose and thought it could do with a makeover would you have surgery to improve it i know it's not for everyone but if cosmetic surgery is something you've thought about or if you've had surgery and it's gone wrong stay listening because you're about to get some expert insight into both the medical and legal sides of cosmetic surgery i'm catherine henry from catherine henry lawyers in newcastle and in my law firm unfortunately we see a lot of women and men who come to us because they've had cosmetic surgery go terribly wrong. For this episode, it's my great pleasure to introduce today's presenter and my colleague at the firm, Senior Associate, Tani Woods. Tani deals with many of the cosmetic surgery cases personally, and today she's going to be talking with prominent plastic surgeon, Dr. Kirsten Matef. I hope you enjoy.
1: Undergoing surgery takes courage. Whether it's life saving, a health choice, or to fix something about your body that you don't particularly like, it's never an easy decision. And it's a choice that should be backed up by a lot of quality information from your doctor, your health service, and even your government. Unfortunately, I've met a lot of people who haven't had a good experience with cosmetic surgery. When surgery goes wrong, it can be debilitating, painful, and can leave clients feeling embarrassed for trusting someone who perhaps wasn't qualified or wasn't following best practice. That's why today I want to talk with a highly qualified plastic surgeon to dispel some of the myths and find out how you can spot a dodgy doctor that's performing cosmetic surgery. I'll also let you know about some of the cases I've worked on and what you might be entitled to if you've had cosmetic procedure go wrong. But first, let me introduce you to plastic surgeon Dr. Kirsten Mateff. Dr. Matef studied medicine and surgery in Sydney in 2003. She was accepted onto the plastic and reconstructive surgery training program in 2009 and has done extensive work in general plastic surgery, breast reconstruction, hand surgery and cosmetic breast, body and facial plastic surgery. She was awarded fellowship of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons in plastic and reconstructive surgery in 2016 and now practices in Newcastle, New South Wales. Dr Kirsten Mateff, welcome to Law Matters. Thank you. Dr Mateff, in my work I see a lot of vulnerable people who have elected to have cosmetic procedures and they've at times been drawn to procedures because of poor self-esteem or other social factors. I often find that there's marketing of these procedures for a reduced price point and it draws in a particularly vulnerable cohort of people. Do you think that there is an opportunity for things to go wrong in cosmetic surgery compared to other surgeries and why that is?
2: Look, cosmetic surgery for a number of years, almost for a decade now, has been growing at an exponential rate. And so what we've seen is that it's been very unregulated um, due to the fact that it really doesn't attract many Medicare item numbers. So In essence, the government and the governing body of medical practitioners, which is APRA, um, has not really been interested in looking at who is actually performing these surgeries. And so it allowed a large element of dysregulation of that area to occur. Um, In the last 10 years, um, both the Australian Society of Plastic Surgeons and the Aesthetic Society of Plastic Surgeons have really pushed... To expect a higher level of surgical care and competency surrounding cosmetic surgery. So As a plastic surgeon, it's part and it's core of our practice. Um, There was an application to APRA by the Cosmetic Surgery Society, which is essentially a made up group of people who have decided to call themselves that. Um, And they made an application and it's been refused um, for many, many years by APRA as a separate surgical subspecialty as it's included already in the nine core subspecialties, which are approved as fellows of the Royal Australian College of Surgeons. So look, aesthetic surgery came out of um, plastic surgery from a point of view that you need to understand what a normal aesthetic is in order to recreate it. So plastic surgery started back in World War One and World War II when we saw horrific facial um, body injuries due to gunshot wounds um, and it then developed through cancer and um, things like breast reconstruction. But in order to recreate something, you have to actually know what normal is or what is aesthetic the aesthetic norm of the face, of the body, of the breast. And so that's where the birth of aesthetic or plastic surgery came from. So in order to do that, you need to have all aspects. So you need to understand not only what is normal, but how do you beautify someone? How do you get them back within that normal range so that they can look at themselves and think, okay, I feel like I fit now within the normal population if there's something that's a little bit different to... um, And look, there are different cultural aesthetics as um, Hispanics, Caucasians versus Asian or African American. There's all different aesthetics through that population group. And what is seen as culturally aesthetic in one population is very different to another population. And so um, over time, plastic surgery has developed those techniques to recreate what would be an aesthetic norm for that population and to address those which we, we see in ourselves as not being Perfect or wanting to change about ourselves. Because these were not, people weren't required to um, be a proper surgeon, so be recognised by one of the colleges of the Royal Australasian College of Surgery, they then went out independently and then started calling themselves cosmetic surgeons as a way to get around and rebrand themselves, but they haven't completed the same rigorous training programme that we have. So um, essentially, in order to even get onto a surgical training programme, you've completed your years at medicine. You've done an intern year which is then signed off by the medical board to say that you're um, eligible to then continue on um, through your career in medicine whether that be surgery, physician training, whatever area you choose to. For surgery most people will then do at least two or three years of resident medical officer then at least between three and five years of unaccredited years of then trying to get onto a training program Um, and then you do a five-year plastic and reconstructive training program followed by at least one or two years of fellowship. So you can see that our surgical training spans at least 10 years. This is in comparison to those who claim to be cosmetic surgeons who may have done some unaccredited years and then get accepted onto what they call a two year training program, um, which is not performed by plastic and reconstructive surgeons. So there are other subspecialties that do do cosmetic procedures, so, areas such as um, sort of some of the general surgeons who have branched out into breast uh, surgery may do some breast reconstruction or breast aesthetic surgery because they're dealing in that same area. They will have gone through a similar training program. They're surgeons, so they have been recognised by the Royal Australian College. Most surgeons will take at least 10 years to get through. Um, So that's the extent of your surgical training, even before you start practicing as a doctor. Um, I've now been out in practice for nearly six years. And even in that time, you find that you, you're still learning your craft, you're still developing and critiquing the way that you do it, but within the context of a really solid foundation of both reconstructive and aesthetic surgery. So I can reconstruct someone's face if I have to have a Cancer, but I can also make someone who is age faced look better because of those techniques that I use, and it's spread across that 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 plane. And if there are complications, then you're much more likely to be able to deal with it and to fix it because you have that reconstructive background as well. It's not a two year training under a little boss in some um, facility. It's a it's a proper rigorous process, and that was our call to APRA and to the government to demand standard of care for surgeons so if you want to call yourself a surgeon you have to have done a rigorous training program because it's not it's not right and it's not ethically or morally right that these people can call themselves surgeon it's essentially like saying I I talk to patients and I say look if you've got an electrician coming into your house if they haven't done an electrical degree or course in, you wouldn't allow them to come in and replumb your house. And it should be the same with our bodies. Why is that any less regulated um, to ensure that these people should have adequate training to be able to deal with one, the complications and two, to be able to perform the surgeries in the first place? It's a real shame that it's taken so long and so much advocacy on on the Royal Australian College's part and and on our part to actually, say, get people to stand up and take notice of what should have been a basic regulation many, many years ago.
1: I imagine as well that a lot of people or a a lot of people who don't necessarily understand the distinction between a cosmetic and plastic surgeon are probably drawn to a cosmetic surgeon because they're offering it a lower price point because they don't have the qualifications that a plastic surgeon may have.
2: Yeah, and I think, look, you're never going to convince someone who wants to buy a cheap car... um, to pay for a more expensive car but I have a sort of a thought process where you can either get the really bomby secondhand car you can get your midway Toyota or you can get your you know your super your Rolls-Royce, por- your Rolls-Royce <laughs> Porsche whatever your whatever you're fancy and I've always aimed myself I'm a well-trained plastic surgeon and look my price reflects what training I have done I won't compete with the cosmetic surgeons because that's not who I think is someone that I set my standard on. Um, So it's really about valuing the skills that we bring to surgery, um, the training that we've gone through, and that does come at a cost. And I I say to people, you know, when you pay for a lawyer, you have a certain cost and that's involved and they work out how much time it's going to cost for them to do your case. And you want a good lawyer to, to represent you. And it's a very similar concept. So I try and talk to people about doing surgery on your body you don't want someone operating on you has hasn't had that depth of training and that experience I I really don't understand it in some ways there's I had a couple of I did a small audit when i was a trainee and looking at i used to train through perth um, and they had a a stack of people who would go over to bali and have all these cosmetic surgeries overseas there was one really interesting lady who went over and had all her abdominal surgery over there and you know her face and stuff like that and then she came back for her breast reconstruction i said well why did you have all of that stuff over there when you had you know really good plastic surgeons goes Oh, but I thought this was much more serious. And I'm like, but you let someone operate on your face. Yeah. <laughs> and that's like out there every day. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting how I don't know whether it's just one way of people minimizing the effect of surgery, but it is a big choice. And who you choose should be a big factor in that. And they need to be recognized as a surgeon that's qualified um, through the Royal Australasian College. It's really easy to access it. You get onto the APRA website and you put in the doctor's name and it'll actually say what college they're, they're with. So whether they're a general practitioner, whether they're a dermatologist, whether they're a, um, through the College of Surgeons and also then what their subspecialty is. So even if they're saying, I'm a cosmetic surgeon, it may be that it's a general surgeon who's then upskilled, but are you happy going to a general surgeon who's upskilled or do you actually want a plastic surgeon to do your operation? And I think that's where patients can choose who they wish to go to but I also think that we have and the government has a responsibility to protect people in Australia from people who aren't surgeons. It's very different if you've got a GP who's performing emergency surgery out in a rural regional area um, as opposed to a person who's then coming in and you know putting in breast implants or doing tummy tucks or facelifts Um, so it's a really it's a very different reason as to why people are performing these surgeries.
1: Yeah, I often find that uh, clients might may come to us and say, you know, I just had I had no idea what I was looking for. Someone just said go to this person, so I just went along. Other than looking or sort of researching the doctor that it is that you're going to see, is there anything else that people should be looking for if they are interested in having a cosmetic procedure done?
2: So, I think there's a number of things. Firstly, they they are registered Um, Surgeon, Um, You can look up and see whether they've got any restrictions on them through the APRA website. You can also go to the college website. So each college um, of the Royal Australian College of Surgeons has their own website. So Australian Society of Plastic Surgeons, the Aesthetic Society of Plastic Surgery websites have listed all of those people who are members of those societies as well and are actively involved in both not only professional development, um, learning they will attend conferences, they're actively involved in training and teaching of of future plastic surgeons and um, that's really important because it really shows a continuing involvement in education and so they're up to date with what is actually going on and what is required for surgery and um, a recent thing has been breast implant associated lymphoma and that has really you know it's sort of rocked the um, breast implant world I guess you could say and so it has been a thing that it's been something that we now have to come through and talk to about patients and I still have patients who come through and said I've never even had that discussed with me. I think also I wouldn't base it on social media. Mm. Uh, would be my one big bugbear is look. There are a lot of a lot of practitioners who completely flout the rules and regulations of APrA around um, medical guidelines for social media. They are doing a bit of a clampdown um, with regards to those guidelines, but I think that it then portrays patients as as yes, they are a consumer, but it puts them in a light that I don't. I wouldn't want to put my family in up on a website or uh, that sort of thing. So it's about privacy, it's about respect of people's bodies, um, what they're having done in the procedures and I think that it is over-sexualised in some sense as well in some of the ways that people portray patients on their websites. It shouldn't be that Prices are discussed on websites. We are a medical profession and um, it really is about discussing with the patient what are their risks, what are the complication um, profile for each procedure. Um, they need to have informed consent, so it should be quite a lengthy consent process that you go through, you need to have at least two weeks between your initial consult with your surgeon and your surgery. Uh, That's a guideline that's been put in by, um, for any form of aesthetic or cosmetic surgery that you're planning on having. And that gives you time to think, gives you time to process the information, time to have that informed financial consent as well, which should also be done in a private, um, secure place. So all of these aspects really need to be considered. And if that isn't happening in your consult, your surgeon that you're seeing alarm bells should be ringing. I think as well uh, some of the clamp down
1: hopefully that will happen removing some of the testimonials and things like that because the power of social media almost minimizes some of these procedures they're major cosmetic procedures that you're doing to your body and it's not always portrayed in that way on social media it's almost as if you'll have this procedure and you know tomorrow you're going to look like this which is
2: not realistic. Yeah it's, it's Most of the time when I have a consult with a patient, one, it's finding out what their expectations are. Why are they having the surgery performed? So looking, have they had a recent marriage breakup and everything in their life is unhappy? That's a really bad time to have surgery. Um, I had one lady the other day who she'd had surgery after she'd just had a recent relationship breakdown. Couldn't remember anything of the consult of any... She didn't have the brain space or the emotional capacity to process any of these risks that she was going to be undertaking um, in the surgery that was going to be performed. And I think um, you're in a very vulnerable position at that time. And I think um, you really need to make decisions. But a lot of people will come to you and they've been thinking about it for years. And I think they've, it's a well-thought-out, considered, it's not a rash impulse response. Um, they really have clear expectations of what can be performed. You go through the common risks and complications associated with that procedure um, and they will then determine that, yes, I'm still happy to go ahead with that. As I said, I always see them a second time. I pretty much repeat everything that I've said in the initial consult just so we're on the same page. No surgery is benign. Every surgery is going to leave you with a scar. And then, obviously, if there is a complication, an infection, wound breakdown, that's going to make that scarring worse, or they're going to have, you know, potentially capsular contracture or mm. um, further surgeries that may be required if, if, the, if that does come to that. And look, it's a rarity, but it does happen. And even in a, a surgeon's hands, you can have complications. So um, I'm very upfront with my patients and I say, look, I'm not God and, you know, I can't create things perfectly. Um, in this world and nobody can guarantee you a result. Whilst we're on that topic, could you give us a bit of an idea about what best practice might look
1: like in terms of the actual procedure? So it should obviously always be performed in a surgical theatre, things like that, that people should be looking for when they're approaching a surgeon.
2: Yeah, so look, some of the stuff you'll see on uh, the recent uh, media with regards to practices that really set outside what we would consider... Acceptable surgical practice in Australia. We have accredited facilities, um, so this has been much more restricted since um, there were a number of local anaesthetic overdoses in day surgeries, which didn't have proper anaesthetic support. Um, they should be in accredited credit facility with accredited, either as a day surgery unit or as a, um, a hospital. Secondly, how the anaesthetic is performed. So um, there are obviously. Um, anaesthetists and then there are um, sometimes some surgeons will perform their own anaesthetic that's very uncommon in Australia um, in the US it's probably more common um, and we don't do many procedures through rooms so we might do small skin excisions mole excisions but I would no one would ever perform a breast implant or liposuction in In their rooms. So there are big warning signs. If you see things like that or say, oh no, we'll do this, Um, think, would I want this done in my bedroom? (laughs) Not really. So they have to be in a credit facility and make sure that the the standards of sterile um, aseptic technique uh, are followed. So um, a a good example is there's a 14 point plan for what we follow with implant placement and all plastic surgeons know that and that really is what then reduces the the post operative risk complication for infections or wound breakdown
1: sure. Is there any general rules for patients in terms of reducing the risk of having an infection after a cosmetic procedure?
2: So uh, there has been some good evidence surrounding um, chlorhexidine washes prior to surgery, but we don't do it for everybody um, because the area is prepped and draped um, in a aseptic technique at the time of surgery. Um, we often give... Um, 20 minutes before the procedure is performed, they'll get an intravenous shot of antibiotics mm-hmm. um, and then often post-operative anti- antibiotics. Again, we follow, there's an antibiotic guideline um, that is set out by infectious diseases physicians uh, for different types of procedures. So there's a whole process where, where antibiotics would be indicated post-procedure and sometimes they're not.
1: I'm Tani Woods, Senior Associate with Katherine Henry Lawyers. And my guest today is plastic surgeon, Dr. Kirsten Matef. Dr. Matef, when I see people who have had cosmetic surgery go wrong, often they've had a procedure performed by a doctor that has not necessarily had the same training as a plastic surgeon, despite having surgeon in their title. I often find that at times patients have not exactly understood what is involved with the procedure or the risks that may be associated with that procedure and often when they do go wrong they can require really extensive revision procedures which are both expensive and painful ordeals. Do you ever deal with patients who have had
2: surgery go wrong and they're looking to fix it? Yeah look this is unfortunately relatively common that um, you'll see these patients coming through our doors and it's really sad Um they're frustrated, they're angry, they've already paid a lot of money um, often and had hospital readmissions with infections and um, it's a difficult position to come back from. Even if you're coming at it anew with a new fresh, fresh set of eyes and you're trying to problem solve, then what is it that I can actually make better for this patient? Um, and sometimes there are cases where I've had to say, look, I think any more surgery would actually be not in your best interest because what has happened is is just too too risky to then go back in and, and do any further surgery. Um, look, we have got a lot of little tricks and ways in which we can reconstruct patients who have been damaged by previous surgery. Uh, we often have a roundtable discussion uh, with the plastic surgeons in our area where we'll bring in our difficult cases and we'll put all our heads together and try and come up with a solution that would be, or they may have seen something like this, that they've done this and it's worked. Um, but often you're working a little bit outside your comfort zone because obviously reoperation rates are... There's much more scarring, a higher risk of infection. Um, you don't quite know what you're going to find when you get in there sometimes. Say a patient comes and they've had an implant and they have no auto- idea what size it is. How do I plan for that surgery. Yeah, which is really <laughs> um, common. Which actually. is very common. And that's probably my biggest bug there is keep your card. If you have an implant, keep your card. Um, and that's really because if any future surgery or if they've had a breast reduction, what pedicle has that surgeon used? Um, get a copy of your operation note and keep it in a safe place. Um, keep it with your marriage certificate or your house. <laughs> Deeds. I say to people, you know, I need to know what's happened in that surgery in order for me to then be able to make a plan and make a safe plan so I don't go in there and say disrupt the blood supply or cause further scarring or, you know, um, say I'm doing a, rhino, a redo rhinoplasty. Have they taken the septal cartilage and I have no cartilage to work with? So there's all these aspects that you don't really know sometimes what the previous surgeon has done and that does make your planning around surgery much more unpredictable Mm. and i'm not sure that they're ever really happy because deep down inside you know they've made that original decision to go with a surgeon and then there's that angst surrounding the cost and the further surgeries and it it is hard on patients and um, we probably make it slightly better in that we can get them to a a better point in the way that they're feeling about themselves but I think it's a really hard road to come back from.
1: Yeah a lot of the clients that we do see as well are quite nervous about needing to have a revision procedure because they've had such a poor experience the first time that they feel quite there's almost like a distrust there um, even when they are seeing someone that's highly qualified for a revision procedure.
2: Yeah and look that's really hard to build that trust and rapport with a patient and I if I say to a patient look your first consult is really just an information gathering exercise. It's about establishing what are the what are the priorities, what are the problems, and then what can we potentially do to deal with it. Um, so you've really got to break it down and dissect the problem out to be able to then try and build it back up.
1: Many of my clients come to us looking for help to fix what's been done to them or for some sort of financial compensation for what they have gone through. Patients are only able to recover compensation if there's evidence from an independent plastic surgeon that confirms the treatment they received fell below an acceptable standard of care and that a physical and or psychological injury has resulted. If that is established, there may be some entitlement to make a claim for the cost of past and future treatment, such as a revision procedure, for loss of earnings and at times pain and suffering damages." It's a very long journey for someone who's had surgery go wrong, but it is important for them to know that there are surgeons like yourself and law firms ready to help them. What are the three top things anyone considering a cosmetic surgery procedure should think about or look
2: out for? So as I said, it's really about knowing who your surgeon is and um, knowing that they are adequately chained, so it would be fellows of the royal australian college of surgeons and that is plastic and reconstructive surgery there are also other subspecialties that do cover um cosmetic or aesthetic procedures um so some of the general surgeons who will perform breast surgery um the Um, Ear, nose and throat will perform rhinoplasties. So there are different aspects of surgery that will be performed by other subspecialties, but they are still properly trained through the Royal Australian College of Surgeons. And I think that really is, if I could get one thing through to patients to look at APRA, see what college they're registered with um, and that they have no restrictions on their practice. Just making sure that you know that they are an accredited surgeon, that they work in an accredited facility, that the anaesthetist is also accredited. So you can also check the anaesthetist that they have working for them, um, that they are also with the Royal Australian College of Anesthesiologists. And to ensure that... um, they have adequate CPD. So that means going to conferences, teaching, um, educational requirements, and that's a yearly requirement. So in order to maintain your RACS fellowship, uh, that has to be done every single year and we get audited on that um, randomly across the the board. Also looking at the subspecialty societies that they belong to. There's another easy way to sort of check whether they're compliant with their CPD and Part of a formal society that then does um, regular educational reviews and um, maintains the training standards that are required for, for patients undergoing cosmetic surgery
1: my name's is tani woods i'm a senior associate at katherine henry lawyers and i've been talking today to plastic surgeon dr kirsten matef dr matef it's been fascinating to talk to you today and to see the process and to hear all about your your knowledge and experience no worries and from the law side of things but also from the medical side of things so thank you very much for your time today
0: it was a pleasure thanks to plastic surgeon dr kirsten matef for being our guest on the podcast today and senior associate tani woods for presenting I'm Catherine Henry of Catherine Henry Lawyers. And if you need to talk to someone about the law and cosmetic surgery, please get in touch. We'd really love to hear from you. This podcast was produced by Liz Clarkson of Nurtured Content and Sarah Shands of Point Five Productions. Sound engineering by Sawtooth Studios. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review. You can also subscribe to Law Matters with Catherine Henry Lawyers wherever you get your podcasts.